Welcome to Wealthy Behavior, talking money and wealth with Heritage Financial, the podcast that digs into the topics, strategies, and behaviors that help busy and successful people build and protect their personal wealth. I'm your host, Sammy Azuz, the president and CEO of Heritage Financial, a Boston-based wealth management firm working with high net worth families across the country for longer than 25 years. Now let's talk about the wealthy behaviors that are key to a rich life. This episode on the podcast, we have an extra special guest, Michael Santoli, CNBC Senior Markets Commentator. Those of you who watch CNBC know that Mike shares his extensive market experience gained from covering Wall Street for over 20 years at Dow Jones Newswires, Yahoo Finance, Barron's, and of course now CNBC on air, as well as through articles and videos on the CNBC platform. Welcome to Wealthy Behavior, Mike. It's a thrill to have you. Oh, it's great to be with you, Sammy. Thank you very much. Mike, how did you decide that this was the path that you wanted to pursue as a senior markets commentator? Um, slowly, uh, over time. <laughs> um, and, and it was a function of how I entered the journalism business. Um, you know, I kind of was a, a liberal arts guy and history major and did always a lot of newspaper work, school paper, edited the paper, wrote a lot, thought I was going to end up in journalism, wasn't sure where. So happened that uh, in the early 90s, coming out of college, my first job uh, you know, there wasn't, it was actually kind of a newspaper recession and it was a tough market for, for, for jobs in general. I hooked on in New York, uh, via a New York times help wanted ad, mind you, uh, with a, a wall street trade publisher that had a bunch of newsletters and a weekly magazine that covered wall street gossip deals, corporate finance, really technical stuff for a small audience that paid a lot of money. I got in there not knowing much about <laughs> finance or if anything, anything about finance. But once I got there, you kind of had to learn the language and just kind of work your sources and construct a beat just like you would in anything else. Got interested in it. Of course, Wall Street starts to come awake in the early 90s. It becomes a more interesting and mainstream part of the world, I think, with a lot more eyes on it. And so I just kept broadening out from there. I hooked on with Dow Jones Newswires, uh, covering the securities industry fascinating there in terms of things going on, like trading scandals at Kidder Peabody and the Orange County bankruptcy, and really the, 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 the beginning of the internet craze. I remember talking to a Morgan Stanley guy as they took Netscape public in 95. So I was just kind of proceeding alongside Wall Street and financial journalism getting bigger and more uh, interesting and central. Barron's, which also, of course, owned by Dow Jones, I moved over there in 97. And that was an opportunity to just sort of take a weekly pace and, you know, be a little more of a uh, have a more of a point of view and do deep reporting and do big features. Uh, I was there for 15 years, did a variety of, of columns there uh, eventually. And um, alongside that, started to do TV. So TV hmm. was basically a sideline until I got I went to Yahoo for three years, which was a hybrid video and and writing. And then. I was always in the CNBC orbit from the late 90s on. And then in 2015, I just essentially kicked over full time, feeling like I was at a point where I was mostly a, as I said earlier, color commentator and um, and, and frankly, more of a kind of pundit columnist person rather than a reporter of the of the, the breaking news. Uh, and I've been here since then. And I think I got into journalism, you know, from uh, partly from that instinct of wanting to be somebody who could speak authoritatively about things um, and make sense of them. And it's, this is a pretty good spot to be able to do that, um, you know, uh, in, in an area that is sometimes tough to sort out for people. 
Yeah. And as I shared with you, when we were connecting regarding this podcast, you're one of the few people where the investment professionals, the advisors who work with clients, the end clients find a lot of value uh, in your commentary. So I really appreciate you sharing your insights yeah, uh, with us. Thanks. Absolutely. So what is the role of a senior markets commentator at CNBC? Well, I think the, the closest analogy I, I like to use is uh, a color commentator in, uh, in sports. So uh, I'm not exactly giving you the play-by-play, -play, telling you specifically what the action is, but trying to interpret and analyze it and maybe illuminate some, some themes and patterns and, uh, and give you, I guess, maybe a greater ability to understand what's happening in the game and maybe stay more engaged. So, um, you know, it's not, uh, it's not quite analogous to um, an analyst on, in a, you know, investment function, which, who is really trying to explicitly find investment opportunities and get fair value of things. Uh, it's to me much more about um, j just keeping it interesting and trying to get behind the, um, the surface action of the markets and, and of course the economy and, and, and companies uh, to, to try and, uh, and sort out what, what might be happening below the surface. Yeah, well, you definitely keep it extremely interesting. And in that analogy with the color commentator in sports, when you're deciding what to comment on, is it interactive? Are you being asked to address certain issues or is it more freewheeling based on what you're seeing? Uh, predominantly based on what I'm seeing. Most of what I do, if it's just in that commentator role where I'm doing a segment or participating in a chat with with anchors it's not scripted um so because it's extemporaneous and 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 essentially supposed to be uh, an exchange uh, i kind of just have to have on an ongoing basis uh, a sense of where we are in terms of market field position in terms of how the market's acting what the message might be uh whether in fact it's it's changing it in in character in any sense and just having that there and, and kind of filtering in the, the news of the day and how it's impacting the markets that's most of what i'm doing now there there definitely are priorities set you know in a collective way from you know the top there's there's a daily editorial call in the morning uh each show has its own uh sort of call to prep for that that day's program but most of that is guidance and, and it's occasionally it'll be like, oh, do you think you might be able to do a little bit of a take on, you know, this AMD news that came out and how does that fit into what the stock is doing? And, and so sometimes there'll be a little bit of a mandate, but for the most part, it's, uh, it's just kind of a, an ongoing thread of observations. And are you thinking of the U.S. market, global markets, stocks, bonds, all of the above, or is there certain areas you focus on more? I would say U.S. and equities is definitely the core of, uh, of the franchise. It's the core of, of what our audience is paying attention to. I'd say in recent years, for obvious reasons, fixed income has become uh, a greater part of it, and, and not just because of you know, I, I remember around the global financial crisis and, and, and everybody noticed what people who've been in the business a long time always knew, which is that the credit markets kind of sniff things out earlier and stresses in fixed income can obviously create cracks in, in, in the economy and markets. And so there was a greater attention on that as a message. But now I think we're also getting, because of the Fed cycle, this sense of, and it's funny because it, it, to me, it shows that people have 
treated it with a sense of novelty that there's the availability of relatively safe nominal yield in the world and they're collecting it and they're interested in it and they're wondering if it's going to last and if you know they should they should just be comfortable collecting uh, the income on cash and clipping coupons. So we've had to do a little more of that. It feeds into a, an asset allocation thing. And I would say in terms of global markets, you know, we probably don't pay enough attention, uh, although I do try to integrate them into the, into the broader view because, uh, for example, when early this year uh, people were complaining that you know, the U.S. market wasn't really up. It was just, you know, six stocks that have been carrying things. And I would point out, well, you know, it is a global move. I mean, Europe was up. Japan was up. Something was going on beyond just a few stocks in the U.S. Yeah, got it. Absolutely. So when you're preparing a TV hit or segment, who do you have in mind as your target audience? It's it's an interesting blend of um, the somewhat sophisticated stay-at-home do-it-yourselfer who is just interested in you know knowing what their money is up to i you know i, I try to stay away from the idea that the audience is tuning in explicitly to get actionable investment ideas even though believe it or not that is something that as a network we try to remain alert to mm -hmm. um I don't think that's the number one reason I think people are watching because they're generally interested in, in, in the stories as they flow through markets, um, the general trajectory of things. Can it last? You know, are there other opportunities being neglected? Are we overdoing it on certain things? So that's one group of the audience. And then I, I always know that the professionals are actually, if anything, the most reliable um, nugget of our viewership. In other words, they just have it on likely yep. with the sound off at all times. And I think the reason I like to remember that is not so much to be sure that we're keeping it on a technical or, or hyper, um, you know, kind of micro focused level, but because you have to convey an awareness that you kind of know what's going on. You know, you don't just want to, you know, be, be kind of spoon feeding things um, and over explaining things. Uh, like, for here's a good example. I mean, when the phenomenon of uh, zero day to expiration stock options became a big talking point earlier this year, you have to kind of nod in the direction of, we know this is going on. We know a lot of you in the markets are watching the flows and think they mean something and are thinking that they're even the tail wagging the dog. I've done the work on it. I've seen what's happening. Here's what I think is happening in context. So it's, it's, a, it's a, some blend of, of those two groups. And then, of course, when the market gets really interesting, mostly to the downside, um, you have people who don't usually pay attention who are coming to us. Who are coming through. Absolutely. So turning to the market and economy, this is definitely an interesting time. Uh, we have an inflation fight, sharp rate hikes, bank failures, a recession that may or may not arrive, a market rally that may be legit, or a bear market head fake. I don't recall something quite like this environment, and I think you and I have been um, following the markets for about the same time. You had an excellent piece over the weekend on CNBC Pro that covered where we were, where we are now, and maybe even where we're going. Can you lay it out for our listeners? Sure. Um, and I agree with you that I, I've been working on this premise for a couple of years that this is a uh, unusual 
compressed spring-loaded cycle that we're in, obviously for all the reasons we know with the pandemic and the policy response to it. And so, you know, things are not going to be wholly different than, than historical patterns, but they are probably going to deviate in important ways, at least in timing and lags and, and all the rest of it. So where I think we've gotten to now is the market pretty much all this year has been acting as if inflation and the Fed's fight against it were last year's problem. Um, and last week was the moment when I think that became the prevailing view. So, the, so public acceptance of this idea that we at least have a pause in the intense concern about inflation and how the Fed's going to have to deal with it has been able to be set aside or at least diluted by excitement over higher stock prices. Let's not forget that sentiment follows share price. But also this idea that inflation has, has receded more quickly than the economy has slowed down or has, has, has slouched toward recession. So all those things together combined with now we have this, I, and I do think this is one thing that's unusual, the apparent structural resilience of huge company profit margins is enabling this to look like it could be the trough for year-over-year earnings growth in this quarter. Credit markets probably should be showing more cracks. They're kind of not. Uh, people are pointing these charts of default rates going up and, you know, for companies, um, and yet you know, high-yield credit spreads are pretty tight. In fact, they've tightened back to earlier tights. So all that together means we have this moment of comfort and by moment, I mean, it could be a multi-month period where the main things we were worried so much about have looked a little bit less threatening. Um, so that's kind of where we are. And I grant everybody's point of view that the market seems too expensive and the indexes are, are somewhat unbalanced given how much market cap has been added by a very small number of the, the, the top NASDAQ companies. Um, but I'm, I'm less concerned about it mostly because it's not as if the average stock is now moving in the opposite direction. It's not falling. I think right. about half of the S&P 500 is up 10% year to date. And so if you only knew that, and if the S&P was up 10% year to date, you wouldn't be saying, wow, what's going on? This, is, this doesn't work. It's actually kind of a fake rally. Um, but the fact that we're up 18% because the huge stocks are running so much has people, I think, giving themselves permission to stay more cautious than they otherwise would. So um, look, I think it's a bull market, even if it ends tomorrow, we'd probably look at it as this weird anomalous interim bull market. Um, but I don't really want to get too caught up in the labels because I'm not sure how that really helps on a forward going basis. Yeah, no, I agree completely. And you've touched on this uh, a couple of times uh, and I wanted to dive into it a little bit more, this idea of market breadth, market leadership. Can you explain for the listeners why it matters and what you've been seeing this year? It's funny. I one of the main uh, questions I keep asking when when a parade of our guests come on and say, "Well, the market is too narrow. It's only a few stocks carrying the indexes," and I'll say, "What exactly worries you about that? You know, <laughs> is it is it one that it makes the market look stronger than it otherwise would, and is getting people too excited and people thinking that we've dodged a bullet and therefore it's safe to take risk again?" Is it to just some technical indicator of a lack of underlying strength, a lack of underlying demand, and therefore the market's more fragile? I think that's 
arguably something that you should be worried about. It could last a long time in that state. But yes, sometimes that does hollow out the market. And it happened, you know, let's say in 1999 and into 2000. Um, but I do think that that's that it's also a factor of and I think this is one of the reasons a lot of our guests complain about it is it makes it super hard to outperform the index. And so. <laughs> yeah. It's really difficult to, I mean, uh, you know, like a quarter of all stocks have been outperforming the S&P. Um, and so that makes it just a more difficult active management environment, a difficult environment to figure out where you're going to get rewarded uh, for, for overweighting and underweighting things. So, you know, I'm all for paying attention to how broad rallies are. But what's fascinating about this is the, the way the story has changed over the course of the year, because if you remember back to January, we got a bunch of these relatively rare upside momentum signals that the technicians who have been doing this for decades said, that's called a breath thrust. And that happens at the beginning of, of, of bull markets and you should pay attention to it. It doesn't mean we're going immediately higher from here, but it often means that six and 12 months down the road, you have a very high odds of having further significant gains. Well, six months past it, we got them, right? You have mid-teens gains since those breath thrusts were fired. And then in January, what, what people who were skeptical of the market were saying was, you know what, it's all just the junky stuff that's rallying. It's low quality stocks. It's heavily shorted stocks. It's all the stuff that got blasted out due to tax loss selling late last year. We can't trust this rally because it's based on low quality. That segued into, and by the way, we did get a, you know, kind of a pullback in February and things did have to digest. That segued into Oh no, it's only six of the highest quality companies in the world <laughs> yeah. that are rallying and carrying it. So I guess my point is I'm very interested in the interplay of crowd psychology, demonstrated market action based on supply and demand, and the fundamental factors that are that are feeding both of them. What what kind of volume have we seen in this rally? Um my two answers would be um, it's it's in this latest phase, it's been, I would say, unremarkable, somewhere around neutral, light on uh, on on some of those melt up days. But crucially, doesn't matter because for decades, rallies been lighter. I mean, uh, volume has been lighter on rallies than in sell offs. Um, and I, I just don't think you've actually with the exception of some like little one day quirks that you've been able to capture that. Now that's a market-wide thing. In individual stocks, I think volume matters a lot when you start to see these sort of like, you know, high volume sell on the, sell on the good news earnings response or something like that. I mean, I think that you, you know, I'm not, I'm not somebody who has a model that sits there and tries to sift through these things, but on a market-wide basis, or if you look at just the ETF volume, it, I've never had success in trying to link that up uh, in a predictive way with with how the markets are going to behave from here. So so one question I had jotted down for you was what do you wish you didn't have to talk about? And while <laughs> these may well, while these may not be in that category, are, are you saying that breadth and volume for the market versus individual stocks on the volume side can be overdone as topics? Um I, I do think they can be overdone. Um I, I don't think that they're that you can ignore them. I mean in fact if anything you know, I'm, I'm certainly somebody who in the later part of last, actually, even near the October lows in the market, um, I was one of those pointing out that the equal weighted S&P 500 was not actually performing as poorly as the heavy uh, mega cap driven indexes. And so I'm, I'm very much 
you know, somebody who tries to pay attention to when you've seen the broad market do something different than the headline indexes. Um, but I do think that uh, that framing it in terms of what percentage of the gain this year has been accounted for by X number of stocks. If you're looking at sort of the gross dollars added in market cap and saying these five stocks are all of it, well, no, every stock that didn't go to zero contributed to the fact that we're also here. And by the way, last year, energy outperformed the S&P by 80 percentage points, right? So what did that tell you about the relative balance of the market? It just so happened that energy started at like 3% of the S&P and went above four. And so nobody said, oh, that's a, that, that's a distortion in the market because it's like one group that's vastly outperforming it to the exclusion of everything else. So I guess my point is you can overdo it. And for me, the more interesting part of it is when the complaint about poor breath becomes kind of the excuse in the cover story for people to validate their position that they already had coming in. Right. So to me, because I have to talk about this stuff every day, I have to be very conscious of how the narrative is changing along the way. And, you know, when you have people coming out and saying like, yeah, sure, my price target is much lower than where we are right now, but it's a fake move because the breath isn't there. Or, you know, this is something totally different from market breath. But when the moment we got a, a federal debt ceiling deal uh, and that the ink was barely dry on it. And the consensus quickly started talking about how, but uh-oh, the liquidity is going to be drained from the market because the treasury now has to issue a lot more debt to rebuild its cash balance, right? So to me, that's really interesting because you have equity people who would never look at the dynamics of treasury net issuance and what does it mean over a six-week period We're all of a sudden saying, that's your reason to be bearish starting in June because we just got a debt ceiling. And so that's... That to me is what, what I try to do is not so much say you're right or you're wrong, but isn't it interesting that everybody suddenly has decided that this is the important thing to talk about? Exactly. Okay. So where are you on recession watch right now? You know, I, I'm on um, recession deferred, but maybe not denied. Um, I mean, I think <laughs> that I'm very much in that group that says recessionary conditions have been rolling through parts of the economy. I also feel as if you know, that one of the unusual characteristics of this cycle relative to recent ones is, guess what? Inflation, which means higher nominal growth, right? So nominal GDP has not calmed down very much at all, right? It's been running seven-ish percent, you know, above five, certainly right now. And what does that mean? It means that's, that's the pie of dollars flowing through the economy that companies feed off of. And so maybe you've had a muted effect on, on the corporate sector in, in part because the, the pie has been growing to that degree. That's definitely probably going to change. It's going to get to be a little more of a scarcity situation in terms of the ability to grow. But um, so I think recession, look, I, I would not ignore what the leading economic indicators have been saying. Uh, the fact that they've been signaling high recession risk for a while. Obviously, the yield curve, I, I, I try not to be too you know, kind of dogmatic about it in one direction or another. I am aware that with long lead times, it usually does eventually get to a recession. Um, but I, I just feel as if there's no magic to it. Um, in fact, one thing is is that, that we did have a, an inverted treasury yield curve for a period in 2019. 
I just refuse to give the yield curve credit for forecasting COVID. So therefore, that's why <laughs> right. we got the recession. I mean, we would have gotten to one at some point. The cycle still exists. Um, but I find it interesting that like housing has maybe bumped, maybe come off the bottom. Uh, manufacturing, you know, maybe is. And there's this other interesting uh, in indicator, which is the leading indicators have been negative for 14 months straight. You've never had that situation without already having been in recession without the coincident indicators finally failing, that sure. hasn't happened this time. And so there's a lot, I know there's a lot of people looking at the soft versus hard data, the survey-based stuff looks poor and the hard data looks a little bit better, but we're not, we're, you know, look, when you start out with three and a half percent unemployment, it just can't go that much lower from there. And so you can land softly and maybe there's something different going on in the labor market than in past cycles. But at some point, you know, it doesn't take much in the way of additional shocks to get us in an actual recession. I think the most bullish reading of everything is that we had a stealth recession. The market priced it in last year. Um, and you can even have it wobble down into the negative GDP numbers from here again. And, and the market won't necessarily have to take the full measure of it. There are people who point to the late 40s um, as an example of, of a recession that the market kind of shrugged off and it had come after a huge inflation spike and a big swing in fiscal spending after the war. I don't want to map onto exact right, right. You know, templates of past cycles, but I'm aware of it. So I was going to ask, can someone believe in this market rally that started in October and still be thinking a recession is coming? It's a, there's definitely tension uh, in, in holding those two views. Um, I think there's two ways to do it. One is that, you know, we have room and time before we have to worry about it. And so, it, you know, you could say a recession is coming, but if it's in, you know, mid 2024 and the market doesn't start to price it in until six months ahead of time, whatever, you can basically play with the lags and leads enough to say that you can, you can do both. Uh, and then the other way is, is exactly what I was saying, which is that you can have a technical recession without necessarily really changing that much in the way of, you know, you're not going to have your typical 20% drop in corporate earnings that you get in a recession and all the rest of it. And the other thing I always point out is there's been something that's been out of sync about the way the market and the economy and the Fed cycle have played out this time. So if we think back to the beginning of 2022, markets at a peak, we all knew the Fed told us in no uncertain terms, Higher rates are coming and they're probably coming fast. And everybody like me looks at all the studies of what's happened in the past and all the investment houses put out the research and say, you know, historically, the market does quite well in the first six to 12 months after the initiation of a tightening cycle. And that's true. The market is typically said, well, the reason they're tightening is because the economy is strong and they have to slow it down. Um, and that didn't happen, right? The moment we turned into 2022, Six weeks before the first hike, the market fails and, in fact, goes to a 20% drop uh, in the first quarter So, or, or near it. Um, and so, therefore, we didn't get the typical rally at the start of a Fed tightening cycle that you usually get. So something's off already here. Um, and, and no, you know, I'm not saying that we're owed anything in this market. In fact, I think that the way that I'll, I'll square the circle in terms of if October was the real low, and it's one that's really going to be, you know, important for a while to come, it probably means forward returns are not that great. 
You know, it's sort of like you didn't get that really comprehensive flush and reset of valuations and really the liquidation of a, a built up kind of equity allocation by a lot of, you know, retail investors and all the rest of it that typically leads to really great returns coming off a bear market low. So I think that's, you know, it's kind of like a pick your poison. Yeah, no, that's fair. I definitely see that compared to like an 08 bottom. Is there anything you think is being underreported or discussed right now that you find interesting? Um, I think, you know, I probably hit on it with the, um, with the, the, the nominal growth um, piece of this. And so I think that there's a lot of lack of attention to, to the, the sort of nominal growth piece that's different this time relative to the past couple of cycles. And maybe related to that, um, I maybe, I'm not sure if you would find this with clients, but there's a, little, there's a lot of money illusion going on with uh, nominal yields and people feeling like it's magic that I can get four or 5% um, in cash. Um, now that's a good thing. I think it creates a cushion. It creates ballast for a portfolio, but, um, and finally now you do have good real yields. So, I mean, I think that's all fair, but I think especially in January, people thought it was just this gift from, from above that you get 5%. And I said at the time, I'm not sure that the love for money markets at 5% is going to survive the first 15% gain in the S and P. Now we get to see if that's the case or not. If we get that real chase, um, that's uh, that 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 might be underway. So, I guess those would be the things. Um, I'm sure there's stuff in kind of the corporate sector that I find, you know, to a degree underreported. Um, but it's, uh, I mean, I think one of the fascinating things is the way that we've, and this is not, I wouldn't say this is underrecognized, but the way that the market has just so quickly decided that this is a you know, a winner take most economy and we're willing to price this in and we're willing to give NVIDIA uh, a trillion dollar, $1.1 trillion market cap. And, you know, the, the numbers will have to figure themselves out down the road. So I, I still do think that there's a little bit of a um, suggestibility in this market and people are willing to still grab on to the hot big winner thing. Um, and it's sort of gone against, um, you know, I think what's been the trend in, money management and wealth management, which is, you know, quantify things, pay attention to factors, diversify. Um, and so that's an interesting tension that I think is going on. And I'm sorry if you hear that, but I'm not that far from the opening bell on the New York Stock Exchange. I, I did not hear it. That's great, though. Um, I asked you this informally, so I'll ask you formally. Is there anything you wish you didn't have to talk about as much? Yeah, um, I, I would say things like... Um, the Fed balance sheet and its supposed impact on the markets. Um, you know, I feel like it's one of those, what we have in, in this business, in, in my business, I mean, in particular, is anything that can be quantified is given a lot more credence as a causal factor than things that you can't quite quantify and look at and represent on a chart. And therefore, if you're able to change the y-axis enough on the Fed or central bank balance sheets and, and plot the S&P 500 against it, and you find a correlation under certain circumstances over certain time periods, people give themselves permission to say, well, it's just a liquidity thing. And, it's a, and without really mapping exactly how that happens and what are we talking about and what about 2015 to, you know, 2019 when the market was up 
like 40%, you didn't get uh, any expansion to the balance sheet or, or whatever. And by the way, the past year as well, you've had the same thing. Um, so I don't like that kind of thing. I think there's also a, a quantification illusion that goes on with certain types of flows and positioning data. Like I read so much sell-side Wall Street research, the institutional stuff, and the game quickly became, okay, what index levels are going to trigger the systematic hedge fund traders and the and the futures trend following systems and what matter, you know, because you could actually quantify it and what volatility index level is going to bring in the risk parity money. So a lot of that stuff to me is understandably important for people who are very short-term tactical players. But I think because we have those numbers, we think we have a handle on, you know, we can, we, we, we give it a little more weight than we probably should. Whereas, you know, there's all of this money in family offices and just like the general flow of, uh, of institutional back and forth that it doesn't show up in you know, ETF flows or in futures positioning or any of the things we can look at. And so we, we can't really comment or we, we don't feel confident commenting on what the impact is. So I think the simplistic liquidity and flow stuff, um, I, I wish I didn't have to talk quite as much about. Is it fair to say, based on our conversation, that you get impatient with people who want to explain away market positivity? Um, that is fair to say. Um, I don't think that that's a that's a a constant um, stance I have. In other words, I I don't think that you know, like in late 2021 or let's say early 2021, uh, I didn't think that was a problem, and I wasn't arguing <laughs> that that was right. a problem. Um, but I think that, uh, look, I think that by necessity, you know, people try to defend their stated view. And there's a, and so I'm, I'm not so much that I'm not so much impatient with individuals who do it as I am interested in, in, the, in that process of, you know, recognition, fighting the trend, capitulating to the trend, and then overdoing it. Like to me, that's, that's where I, kind of exist. And I, and I think it's by necessity, you know, I've for in one fashion or another been kind of writing a, a market column or speaking in these terms for 25 years, been doing Wall Street coverage of one sort or another for over 30 years. And I don't have an edge on the, you know, number crunching analysis side. I don't really have an edge on the get the information first side because that game is so tough. So if there's an edge, it's kind of like synthesizing all of these factors that get that get us into a certain place in the cycle and figuring out whether we uh, whether, you know, the, the storyline has failed to recognize reality or has overshot reality. If there's um, one investor you could have regular access to to pick their brain, who who would it be? Wow, um, that's a good question. I I think it'll be either a guy like David Tepper or David Tepper himself, and and um, that's strictly because I feel in tune with his general uh, what I can tell of his approach, um, which is. You know, he's he, he operates on kind of educated gut feeling in a sense. I mean, obviously, mm -hmm. he's got all the numbers. He's a credit-based guy initially. So he's got to make sure that there's a kind of 
overlay of here's where we are in terms of credit cycle, the availability of money, the fundamentals. But he seems to just have a very good way of boiling down the setup at any given moment for the markets. And, and crucially, you know, and this is based on, you know, comments he's made on our air or whatever, when he doesn't really see an edge, he's willing to say, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to bet big. I don't really okay. have a reason to. And so that general type of approach uh, and somebody I'd like to be able to check in with and say, okay, what do you, what are you seeing right now? It'd be like that. Oh, okay, great. So you touched on this a little bit in terms of market pricing and market moves. Curious, with all the time that you spend watching the markets, what do you think about market efficiency and the wisdom of crowds? Do you think generally the market gets pricing right? Um, I think eventually it does. I mean, you know, it, it's I, I find my take on market efficiency is more that it's inefficient in unpredictable ways in the short term therefore difficult to game not that it's perfectly efficient at all moments so if if the way it's inefficient is not something that's very easy to you know to capture then it might as well just be efficient um i funny i used to when i was at barons uh, early in my my time there uh we used to have a policy if we were going to do like a big company profile where we were expressing a point of view about where the stock might go we had this policy of we, we, we would only do it if the CEO would, would talk to us or the CFO, um, if it was a positive story, because we felt like that was a decent check on like, it would be a red flag if they didn't want to participate, you know? So this is, this is at a time when, uh, again, late 90s, growth-driven mm -hmm. market, I'm going to make a call on Eastman Kodak, okay? <laughs> it seemed like the, the stock got unduly punished. Uh, they had a new CEO, et cetera. Well, we couldn't really work it out so that I could get in there for like a month or two months to talk to the CEO and such. In that time, the stock really ran. And so we sort of were at a position of saying, we think things are going in the right direction in the short term here, but you know, it's hard to say that there's going to be a ton of upside. So you had to kind of fudge it. And, and my take was quickly, well, the market may not be efficient, but it's more efficient than magazines. <laughs> and I think that <laughs> In a broader sense, like the market's not efficient, but it's probably more efficient than any process that's easy to implement in the uh, in the near term. Uh, but but I see, I mean, look, the, the meme stock stuff shows you that you can have currents of irrationality running through markets for very long periods of time. And that the market is and one thing that surprised me in recent years is the market's willingness to just seize upon these abstractions as worth capitalizing at high levels. I mean, you could call crypto an abstraction, but you could also just say um, like these, the vibes that are attached to certain, you know, companies that come public and they just have an EV hook or there's, uh, you know, or there's going to be a short squeeze someday. I mean, the stuff that you can't really put your hands on. Um, so, you know, I think there's silliness that goes on around the edges, but it's just, it's tough to uh, to either fight or or corral into uh, into an investment uh, thesis or uh, or process very easily. I love that line: "More efficient than a magazine," which makes yeah. a lot of sense. So, turning to CNBC for a couple questions: How should individual investors who like to stay informed, and and they were part of those folks that you're you're thinking of when you're putting content together, who like to stay informed about markets and find them interesting? utilize the information they hear on CNBC, given that 
investing should be more of a long-term exercise. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the way I, I generally think about it is, um, is to use it as, you know, a window on what other people are doing and thinking about their investments. And then asking yourself if that's a reason to rethink your own, right? So the day-to-day -day market action, you know, I can come here and say, um, you know, Microsoft's approaching 350 and, you know, the former high was 380 or whatever it was. And maybe somebody's going to gun for that and there's whatever. So there's all these like tactical stuff that might be driving things in the short term, um, you know, or there's a big, you know, futures role in oil and this is why it's moving. Most of that is sort of interesting. It tells you, you know, some with with some basis in reality why things are happening as they are. Um, but it doesn't necessarily, in most cases, mean you should kind of rethink what you're doing with your own money. Um, so it's funny. It's like, in a sense, it's um, if somebody, if you asked a doctor, like, how should any individual think about sports and fitness? They'd say, well, you know, you should be active and you should try to exercise once in a while and, you know, be safe about it. But, you know, try to take a walk and, um, you know, expend more calories than you consume if you can. Um, that doesn't have any bearing on on what you do when you're watching an NBA game. Right. So it's like your <laughs> yeah. own participation in the athletic and active world isn't necessarily something that uh, that that maps onto the day-to-day -day movements, but we do, I feel like we, what, what we can do is, and this I think is pretty crucial, it is when economic numbers hit, when corporate earnings results are released, we are, I think, pretty good at breaking down how those are being received by the market and how they compare to what was expected and priced in. Definitely. Because if yeah. there's one thing that people often, and this may be less so now, um, but there was a time when people were like, but the numbers were good and the stock was down or something like that. Um, I think that we're, we're kind of on top of that, of that function and exactly how the, uh, the markets digest every new little incoming bit of, uh, of information. Yeah, absolutely. The expectations game and the perspective you guys provide is tremendous there. You referenced Gen X skepticism in your weekend article, <laughs> which is yeah. a fellow Gen Xer. I do think that's the best kind of skepticism out there. Not to get you in trouble or anything, but is there a format or a type of segment on the network that people should be more or less reliant on for information? Um, you know, I, I think that the explicit stock picking segments are kind of like, if that's your thing, then great. Like if you're looking for a ticker, um, you know, go for it. But I, I feel like there's a certain level of randomness about the combination of the stocks being discussed, which may be in the news or maybe the subject of a recent analyst action, the person who's out there weighing in on them and whether it's an opportune moment to buy or sell the stock. Right. So right. I feel like there's a big, uh, you know, a multi-stage filter you should apply to things that are things like that. Uh, and again, I, I feel like it's the kind of, you know, you can you can treat sport as something you do for exercise. You can treat it as something you view for entertainment. You could treat it as something that you bet on every 
you know, inning or five minutes during the game, right? So you're going to have to find out where you are on that spectrum. I think the more useful ones are, um, are sort of like the, the multi guest panel mm-hmm. that's, that's going to explicate a big economic release or, um, or sometimes a big earnings uh, report. Sure. Um, you know, I feel like it's kind of overdone how we've gamed the, you know, uh, the, the release of, of big company earnings, you know, every three months should not be a make or break moment for uh, a company or a stock, but it happens. And people have like these, you know, preloaded trades ready to go. And it's, you know, they go 20 lines deep into the income statement to figure out what they're going to trade. So, you know, I, I think people should recognize just exactly how quantified and automated the um, the short-term world of of trading is and to just opt out of playing that game got it so one of the ways that i interacted with your content back in the day was through your tweets about the mystery broker <laughs> what is the mystery broker i know you're not going to tell me who yeah, what, yeah. It, what is the mystery broker how did it start and is there anything you want us to know about it sure <laughs> well this is a phenomenon that i didn't seek out uh, it, it it kind of grew organically. Uh, I'll tell you how it started because that's kind of crucial. I was at Barron's. I wrote a column called Streetwise, like right up front of the magazine at the time. And it was sort of a, you know, a weekly, you know, kind of take on the markets. It was supposed to have some kind of edge or point of view or just wit, frankly, about what was happening. And I had gotten an email at some point in 2007 that I had forgotten about from a, a, a broker, an inv- a financial advisor. Um, and it was super bearish and, and negative on the economy and the markets in, in 07. And, and in retrospect, it was incredibly prescient, but I didn't remember this. This is crucial. So this is now mid-2009. Mid-2009, the, the low in the market was in, but it was not believed, really. Um, you had this year and a half devastating bear market financial crisis. Everything goes to the brink and market starts to recover. Um, you know, the, the, the Fed is doing what it's what it's doing with QE and et cetera. We got we got the financial sector stabilized. So that's the setting for another email from the same financial advisor saying, I told you when things were going to fall <laughs> apart, the financial crisis is now over. Wow. New bull market. Right. So. He didn't want to be identified. It was, I think I, I got the impression that it was just, he perceived it as a hassle to get compliance, to allow him to speak to the media uh, or the, his firm kind of didn't want him to and whatever. Um, and, um, but he's the kind of guy who I think is very competitive with himself to try and make predictions and feel like he has a good handle on where the market's going. So I wrote a column and it started out something like, there's this guy who emails me once in a while. And I just described his, you know, the pattern of having made these calls. And then I detailed his current market view with, you know, quoting from this memo that he had sent out. It, I get the impression it's exactly what he's sending to clients. Hmm. Um, and he's a financial advisor who seems to have like some old style discretionary accounts, you know, uh, sure. been in the business since the 80s. And um it took off like nothing I could have imagined. And I think it showed you, it was the emotions surrounding that period of time in, in mid to late 2009. Um, and they wanted to know more. And it was also such a very, very vivid lesson to me about the power 
of anonymity in people's imagination once you start to attribute things to a secret source. It was not my intention to do that, and um, but I find it fascinating. And so since then, I would give these periodic updates in print. Once I got on Twitter, which was in 2012, when I went to Yahoo, it was the first time I ever did any social media because they told me I had to. Um, I started, I, I sort of ported it over to Twitter with a hashtag. And so that way there's like kind of a running record of what this guy's been saying. And it was easily the thing I do that gets the most response. And again, it's what, it's this lesson in people's willingness to attribute power to somebody who seems to have a strong view, but I can't find out who it is. And as I've said repeatedly, um, it's not somebody whose name anybody would know. So I'm not sort of shielding right. some known guru out there who's making these calls. It is not me, meaning it's not some alter ego that I've created. <laughs> and that's something other people think as well. And also, it's nobody who has any crystal ball. So even though I, I, I think right now what, what's most useful about the Mystery Broker content is he's almost like this running um, source of observations from a particular school of thought and analysis. So they, it's like for the, for the people who, you know, were, were big adherents to Marty Zweig and all the kind of old style technical analysts along with, you know, somebody who thinks that the, the Fed and yield curve cycle matters a lot and somebody who cares a lot about how markets overshoot in the short term, et cetera. Um, he he's 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 a good as a source of, uh, of of here's what that group is up to here's why they're either loving or hating the market right now and i mean it's 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 a bit of a headache to be honest because if i put something out there i know i'm just going to get a lot of blowback from people saying either quit this it's stupid or it's irresponsible somehow for you to be passing along these anonymous thoughts which is insane because it's just somebody's opinion um or people giving me a hard time because he had a bad call. Um, right. So it's, it's this funny thing, but I, I, again, I think the thing I take most away from it is just the, um, just the notion that, um, that the crowd really wants to believe that there is an inside source that who's got things figured out more than they do. And I, I'm not sure that it's the case. I've often said, yeah, and he, and, and by the way, he has said at times, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, kind of semi-retiring or, you know, leaving the firm. Um, and if I do, you know, maybe you, you, I'll go on the record, you know. And I've often said if I told everybody today this person's name and where he worked and all that, you'd probably not really put a lot of weight in what he says. You know, it's That's really funny. fascinating. So, um that being said, I think he does have a really good handle, a willingness to be contrarian, a good sense of his history and how the economy evolves and all that stuff. But, um, you know, he's a little bit of a man out of time because it's like that's the business is no longer really doing what he does very much. You'll get you'll keep doing the the updates. Sure. I'll keep doing yeah. them as long as he sends them to me. And, and I, I, but I um, I'm very strict about never asking him for updates. Got it. Um, because I feel as if that would somehow skew it a little bit. I almost wait for him to, you know, have something to say. And usually what it is, is 
I wake up in the morning and there's an email from him that came in at like one in the morning. It's like a Microsoft Word document. It's really like, it's not slick. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, usually I'll, the next morning I'll kind of sift through it and, and, and pass along what seems relevant. So yeah, I'll keep doing it. Um, and, uh, yeah. So who knows? I mean, I do kind of hope someday there'll be a culmination of it, but, um, you know, where the, the yeah, I can identify. Well, I do know, by the way, that he watches the Twitter feed. Ah, well, um, I would imagine, right? Yeah. You know, so he's aware. I don't even know what his account is, but, I, you know, um, he's he's aware of how I've characterized things on Twitter. So as you explained your your background and how you got to your position now, it resonated with me that you were really on the cutting edge or aware of the industry trends and you kept staying with them and maybe sometimes ahead of them in terms of how you were delivering content, where you were delivering it through, where do you see financial news media going and where do you want to go next in terms of potentially reaching a broader audience? Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's tough because I, I feel like I was, uh, I was, I was in print at a time when that was maxed out and, and, and went into a decline. And now, you know, arguably, well, not arguably, I mean, you know, free cable, uh, broadband, free cable, um, you know, the bundle is, is, uh, is declining in terms of viewership. I think the way, the way it's going though, is it, it's splintering into a, a few different pieces. So in one, in one sense, the, the immediate, here's what happened. Here's a quick take on things. Um, here's a little bite for you to catch up with, with what the market's up to or what, what just broke in, in business. That's migrating to whatever social platform and just the little like constant flow of video and snippets that you see everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, it's not that satisfying, but I think it's necessary. And then in parallel with that, um, there's always a need for you know, a step back and a little more of a uh, of a longer term, broader analysis of where where things fit. And I would like to see some more of that, maybe some kind of a format, a discussion type format evolve, if, whether it's once a week or something like that, that somehow matches up a little better with the things I write weekly, which are in that in that vein right it's just kind of like here's where we are here's what seems to matter right now in terms of the next 100 feet in front of us in the markets um and then bigger picture where are we in in this you know in the cycle and, and everything else so hopefully it cleaves along those lines as well i don't think that the medium matters all that much i mean i have to say the biggest thing that's changed over my time is um just how much more familiar people are with the guts of what happens in the economy and the markets. Mm -hmm. I always like to say when I got into it in the early nineties, the fed didn't even tell you when it changed interest rates, right? It just did it. And then the bond trading desks would have to figure it out based on their reserve actions and stuff. And then 94, they finally say, because it was a big surprise hike or whatever, they're like, we did this. So now they get press conferences and now people know about dot plots. And now right. everyone has a, a belief that they know what the Fed does. So it makes it challenging to always seem like you're on top of what matters. But right. inevitably, the edge moves along with it, the edge of what's actually 
most important or 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 maybe uh, you know uh, the biggest swing factor in market. So I you know somewhere along that track, I'm hoping there's there's a place for me for a while longer. Oh, I would imagine there will be. Thank you very much. This has been a tremendous conversation. I found it very insightful, and I'm sure our listeners are. And I would encourage them if they haven't interacted with your content before to find you. So where can our listeners find you, Mike? Oh, sure. So in addition to just uh, CNBC on the air almost every day, uh, cnbc.com slash pro is, uh, is where my, uh, my columns reside as well. And on Twitter? Yes, at Michael Santoli is Great. the handle. You're pretty active there. Yes, uh, wax, wax and wane, but, uh, <laughs> but I'm always there in some way. All right. Thank you very much, Michael. I really appreciate your time and uh, thank you for your generosity today. Glad to do it. Thanks, Sam. How to Build Your Next Million, Heritage Financial's ebook teaches investors about the tools and strategies that can help them save, keep, grow, and protect their assets. This free ebook can be accessed in this episode's show notes and on our website at heritagefinancial.net. Thank you for listening to Wealthy Behavior. If you found the conversation useful, please leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and share this episode so those around you can live a rich life too. We appreciate your feedback and questions. Please email us at wealthybehavior@heritagefinancial.net. For more insights, subscribe to our weekly blog at heritagefinancial.net and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Check out my personal finance blog at thebostonadvisor.com. Wealthy Behavior is produced by Kristen Kastner and Michelle Kakinis. This educational podcast is brought to you by Heritage Financial Services, LLC, located in the greater Boston area. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast or that of the speaker are subject to change and do not constitute investment advice or a recommendation regarding any specific product or security. There is no guarantee that any investment or strategy discussed will be successful or will achieve any particular level of results. Investing involves risks, including the potential loss of principal.